I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today, my guest is a little different than the typical conversation we have on slow-mo. Josh Linker passionately believes that all human beings have incredible creative capacity, and his mission is to unlock the inventive thinking and creative problem-solving to help all of us, to help all of us leaders, individuals, all communities soar through creativity. He has been the founder and CEO of five tech companies, which he sold for a combined value of more than $200 million. He's the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Disciplined Dreaming, and the other bestseller, The Road to Reinvention. He has invested and mentored more than 100 startups, and he is the founding partner of the Detroit Venture Partners. Josh has been twice named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. He received the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. And he has a new book coming out in April 2021, Big Little Breakthroughs. I know you may find this unusual. Why do we want to talk about creativity on slow-mo? Well, because I believe, like Josh, that you too are creative and that if you can tap into that creativity into your personal life at work or whatever you do, then finding that potential in you is part of being who you really are and accordingly finding more peace with yourself and hopefully finding a better place in life. So we're going to spend a quick conversation. Josh normally speaks very quickly, so this is going to be the fastest slow-mo you've heard so far. And I hope you will enjoy a little bit of a refreshing conversation around innovation. So I love, love, love how you simplify innovation, the way you talk about it, the way you, you try and make it look easy. So this actually is where I want to start our conversation. I want to start by saying you started five companies. You are speaking all over the world, probably one of the most booked speakers in the world around the topic of innovation. Mega massive, you know, stadium like when we used to travel where you talk to hundreds and thousands of people. You already published two books and your third book is on the way. And you make it look really easy, Josh. Now, don't lie to me. Is it really that easy? I mean, how can you do all of this? You're also a professional jazz player. Like, who does that? First of all, thanks for having me on your show. I'm a big fan of yours and the incredible work that you've done. I don't think that creativity is necessarily easy because it certainly takes work, but it isn't, it isn't out of grasp. Like, all of us can develop these skills. All of us can do really incredible things when we sort of tap into this dormant creative capacity that we all share and bring it to the surface. Just like learning to be a great tennis player isn't easy, like it requires work, but all of us could you know, potentially learn how to hit a ball. Same type of thing with creativity. It, it does require some discipline and focus, but it's, it's within the grasp of all of us. 
When you say discipline, I mean, discipline is normally not associated with creative people. It's not something that a creative person wants to hear to start with. It's you want to be all over the place when you're creative, no? No rules, no. Yeah, that's that's a common misconception. But so I started my career, you know, playing jazz guitar. And, and you can think like, what is more fluid and loose than playing jazz music? 99% of the notes that you play are, are made up on the spot. And you think it's just like a free for all, but it's actually not. There's some real structure. There's chord signatures. There's certain cues that the musicians interact with. And without it, it actually sounds like a train wreck. There's a type of jazz called free jazz, which you just <laughs> don't want to listen to. <laughs> Yeah. But I think that creativity is often misunderstood that it requires, you know, some lightning bolt of inspiration from the heavens and it just flows naturally and it's it's just an innate skill and all that's the, the opposite, really. It's uh, the intersection of open-mindedness with discipline. Yes, discipline and rigor really actually brings creativity to the surface. It's a much more systematic approach to learning. Just like you learn a language, you can learn the skill of creativity. You can build creative muscle mass. And the cool thing is that, again, it's within the grasp of all of us. You don't have to be Elon Musk. You don't have to be the Google guys that you used to work with. You know, you and me and normal folks can, can actually bring these skills to our, our lives and our businesses and unlock the outcomes that matter most to each of us. I love your first book, right? So the idea of disciplined dreaming. Now, the mix of those two is really weird. Once again, when you really think about dreaming, dreaming is like, okay, I'm going to go wherever my dream takes me. To introduce discipline into that is something that I believe you've captured really, really interesting. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, what we've learned is that the most successful creators have this intersection of discipline and dreaming, kind of a, this yin and yang thing where, where yes, there's certainly free-flowing imagination, there's there's expansive ideas, there's vision, there's imagining what's possible instead of just what is. And that that's the dreaming part, and it's crucial. I mean, without that, you have a stifling bureaucracy, and that's no good for anyone. But on the other hand, without any constraints, actually, it hurts creativity rather than enables it. And so having some framework, some scaffolding actually helps sort of direct the raw creative energy toward productive outcomes. You know, like for example, if you think about creativity as just anything that is you could imagine, if I took purple crayons and drew all over the walls, that would be creative because it didn't exist before, but it would be sort of wildly unproductive. On the other hand, if I invented some type of cool new wallpaper that I could push a button and the color would change automatically, that would actually be rather productive. So I kind of think of creativity as just sort of raw flowing ideas, whereas innovation has some utility as well. It's sort of putting those ideas towards something that, that could be productive. And that, that's where the discipline comes in. I mean, if you just have one without the other, you're really missing a trick. Are you saying that creativity is not just about coming up with the idea? It's also about seeing that idea all the way through to execution to actual success? Yeah, another misconception is that a product or a solution goes like this. One single initial idea followed by mindless execution. And that just <laughs> isn't the way it happens. You know, what happens yeah. is there's usually an initial idea. Great, that's awesome. But it's more often than not, it's flawed. And it only comes to life through a series of additional creative steps. Think about those as micro innovations throughout the entire process from idea evaluation to, you know, where are you going to put it in the PowerPoint and who's going to fund the idea and, you know, how's it going to get out the door? So I think that all of us can play a, a role in, in creation, not just initial ideas. But yeah, you're exactly right that the creative process is far beyond just blue skying it. And, and to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. I actually have developed over the last 20 years a toolkit to help people, you know, brainstorming is the old technique, which is wildly out of date and not that productive. So I've built a whole set of tools on how we can actually extract our ideas that are more fun and, and more profoundly effective. But to be clear, there is some rigor and discipline that goes along with the creativity. 
if you've ever seen a wonderful musician play a rock band concert, and it looks like they're just playing it for the first time, or you see a comedian, it looks like they're just sort of coming up with these ideas off the cuff. There certainly is some improvisational delivery, but a lot of that has been pre-built and tested in the same way a scientist would pre-build and test you know, a new drug therapy. So I really think there's a cool opportunity for all of us to think of creativity, again, as not something that's imbued from the gods, but rather a skill that we can learn that when aligned with a process actually enables better outcomes. So help me understand this. I love creativity. As a matter of fact, one of my biggest bugs is that every time my job got boring, I left and did another job, right? I never left before we delivered, but I really, really always wanted that excitement and creating something new in my life. But I also have to say that one of the things that really made a major difference to my life as a person is that I also used that approach to being creative in my individual life. We somehow say that innovation or creativity is just left for the workplace, but you basically sometimes say that it's our innate design, that we're actually designed to be innovative, that this is actually the the nature of humanity. Can we prove that at all? I mean, many people are quite boring, if you ask me. Well, I might uh, you know, respectfully disagree there. So it's not only my opinion. I've, I've done 20 years of, of research on human creativity. But you know, a study from Harvard, that's the age-old question. Is creativity born or is it developed? Is it nature or nurture? And what they learned is that creativity is actually 85% learned behavior, which means that you and I on our groggiest day have 85% the creative capacity as Mozart or Da Vinci or Picasso. Wow. So you look at our brain structure and chemistry, you know, it's not different than Paul McCartney or Beyonce. And so if you think about that, you and I come from a tech background. So if you think about the brain itself as the hardware, great. And then we have to apply some software, but that software, which is, you know, sort of a methodology and a process to ideation, um, absolutely is within the grasp of all of us. So when I look around, it's not, it always bugs me. It's heartbreaking when you say like, oh, here's a tour of my company. The creatives sit up on the second floor. Why, why, can't, <laughs> yeah. why can't we all be creatives? And you're right. Yeah. It can apply absolutely outside of our professional lives. We can be creative in the way that we grow a family or interact with our spouse or contribute to our community or come up with ideas for our church or synagogue. So it really is. It's innate propensity. It's a skill that has to be developed, but we all have the creative capacity to bring these ideas to the surface. I like to say we're hardwired for creativity. In fact, that's our natural state. The one thing that's different though is that you know, we often equate creativity with job title or a particular skill. So you might say, well, hey, I can't paint with oil on canvas. I'm not very talented at that. So therefore, I'm not creative. And I, again, it's heartbreaking to me because, again, we can be creative in our own ways. I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I tried. And you don't want to see me anywhere near a dance floor. So for some people, creativity looks like a, a traditional thing like music or art or whatever. But other people, you can be creative in the way you run a financial report or the way that you sell or the way you interact with a colleague or the way that you conduct a job interview. So creativity is a universal technology, really, that can be deployed for whatever outcomes matter most to each of us. But does it really matter to each of us? So does everyone benefit from being creative? Does everyone need to be creative? I mean, the idea you just said, be creative when you prepare a financial report. You know, most people in the finance sector would say, hey, 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 this is dangerous. Don't be creative at all. Just be exactly as you're told to be. And I'm with you 100%. I believe everything can be done more creatively. But tell us more about that. Does it benefit everyone or should some of us just stick to the rules? 
No, I think it really does benefit all of us. I'm not saying, by the way, we should do something inappropriate. So when you use the word creative with financial report, it implies something, you know, (laughs) nefarious, but you're preparing a report. Maybe you could make it look better. Maybe you could extract insight from reading between the lines. Maybe you could say, hey, what's missing from this report and what else could we bring it to to add extra additional value? So again, it's by no means creativity off the rails. I'm I'm not saying that we do something that would be harmful, but I do think that all of us can be creative. Let's say you're, you're raising kids and you're trying to, you know, help them understand the world. What a wonderful place to be creative. Even if you're, again, working in a call center, following the script, you know, having, having the ability to have nuance and being able to adapt in real time, these are skills that I think are critical. And in fact, when you think about what the past model was, it was about, you know, do what you're told, keep your head down, follow the rules, follow operating procedures. But today the world is too complex, too fast moving, too competitive. In other words, we have to sort of improvise in real time. There's no such thing as an operating manual that will lead us to our full potential. So I think it's important, regardless of your job or profession or, or geography or gender or whatever else, that yeah, I do really do believe that we can all be creative, again, in appropriate and thoughtful ways. Some of your favorite creativities ever. By the way, I've heard quite a few of you that are quite interesting, but top three that come to your mind, like people who really, really, you as a creativity and innovation expert would go like, wow, that was clever. You know, share a few with us. Sure. So the new book, uh, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, it really flips the model upside down. So I want the new face of innovation not to be Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. I want it to be everyday people. I mean, I'm kind of on this mission mode to like help everyday people become everyday innovators. That's an incredible mission. That's exactly how it should be. Well, thank you. You know, not to get all philosophical, but I really believe this and the research bears it out that that all 7 billion of us walking around this planet have huge reservoirs of dormant creative capacity. I study this stuff and I have dormant creative capacity as do you, as do us all. So I feel like if I can help people extract just a little bit, like even 5%, the world is just a better place. That's a high leverage activity. So a 5% more creative approach might yield 100% bigger results. And I think that applies to not only business, but to educational outcomes and environment and community and, and again, all the things that we care about. But back to who I think is innovative. Again, it's not so much to me, you know, Albert Einstein or Edison. Yeah, those are guys are really innovative, but we already know that. I'll tell you someone who's innovative that struck chord with me. I interviewed a guy for the book by the name of Trowin Resterick. Trowin lives in London. And you know what? He's not a famous celebrity. He's not a billionaire. He doesn't wear a hoodie. He's like a normal dude. And he struggled through college and he barely is getting by and he's trying to pay the bills like all of us. But he was always drawn to helping the environment. He really cared about the outdoors. And he learned that in central London, the single biggest problem that they're facing environmentally is cigarette litter. So you've probably seen it, you know, instead of you look up at these beautiful buildings, but then you look down and you see cigarette litter in the street. And not only is it unsightly, but, but it's terrible for the environment. It's poisonous for small animals or children that ingest it, just bad all around. So all these people have tried solutions to fix the problem. Nothing has worked. They've tried issuing fines. They've tried shaming people, et cetera. Nothing really works. So enter Trowin, this everyday innovator. And he says, okay, I got an idea. So he creates something called, it's a big yellow metal box that's mounted at eye level, like on a post yellow metal box, but the front of it is glass and there's a divider down the middle. At the top of it, it asks a question like, which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburgers? And there's little receptacles that allow smokers to vote with their butts. <laughs> I love it. So you stick your cigarette butt in and, and it falls on top of the other, other cigarette butt. So it looks like it's like a bar chart. So you can see like who's in the lead, pizza or hamburgers. And this is low tech. That's so clever. So clever, right? It's, it's low tech. It didn't require advanced degrees. It didn't require a huge capital investment. And you know what happened? Cigarette litter was reduced by 80%. 
And so today, Trellin's got, so he calls it the ballot bin. You can customize it with any two-part question. They can be funny or serious. And they're now in, in 27 countries. And so here's this everyday dude, like has made a real impact on this problem that's been plaguing society because he chose to become an everyday innovator. So, but when I hear stories like that, those are the ones that give me chills down the spine because they're not the founder of Netflix. They're, they're just an average person, which, you know, when I look at the founder of Netflix, we say to ourselves, that's cool for him, but that's probably not me. But when I look at Trellin Restaurant and central London, I say, you know what? I got this. I could do that too. And that to me is what the book is all about and what I'm so passionate about. That is amazing. That's an amazing story as well. And I, if you don't mind me again, I don't want to be philosophical, but I have to say there is something missing when we started to make innovation sort of limited to that mega size. I'm going to have to build Netflix or Apple or whatever, because I'll, I'll tell you openly, I feel that those big innovations are now falling short. I mean, our planet is not in the greatest place. And because of the way companies report and because of profit, you know, centricity and so on, maybe we're not getting the right innovations that can actually save our planet. And I, I think there is a problem with that, isn't there? I couldn't agree more. So you obviously were at Google X and talk about moonshots and swinging for the fences and all that. So let's just take a look at a couple of flavors of the word innovation. So I look at the work you did at X is all capital innovation. These are things that would change the world, billions of dollars at stake, et cetera. But again, in that category, that's accessible to a very, very select few. Most people don't work at X. But then you double click and think about the word innovation just with a capital I and the rest lowercase. So that middle level of innovation, that might be an idea that, that boosts sales by 14% next year, which would be awesome. You know what I mean? So like these are ideas that are less glamorous, but really meaningful. They might come two or three times a year. They don't get movies made about them. But then one double click beneath <laughs> that is all lowercase innovation. And that's to me really exciting. Again, I think of those as big little breakthroughs, micro innovations. And what we've learned is actually that, well, the all caps innovation, the Google X stuff captures headlines. 72% of the United States gross domestic product comes from those little ideas. Those are the everyday meat and potatoes. Those are hardworking, scrappy ideas. And yeah, they're not as glamorous, but they add up to great things. So here's the deal. If we think about innovation only counts if it's a billion dollar idea, then on the scales of justice, it's too risky, too far out of reach for most people. But when we think about those little ones, those daily habits of micro-innovations, those are, first of all, accessible to us all. They are low risk because if you, they don't work out, you didn't burn the building down. And while you're doing it, you're developing the skill set. You're building, you're doing the reps, like you're building skills. Uh -huh. And so to me, that's really the way to think about innovation, not as this giant swing for the fence, bet your career on it. It's the high velocity, high frequency habit of daily creative habits. You know, you, you spend a lot of time teaching the big guys and teaching, or, you know, most people who are in the innovation space, your approach now is to say everyone everyone should go out and innovate. So we have thousands of people listening to us and we are telling all of them, it's your turn, right? You can do something and that something doesn't have to be the next iPhone or iPod or whatever. And you can do something that could be in your family, it could be in your you know, personal life, in your relationship and whatever that is, you can be an innovator. 100%. And I mean, just think about the most practical things because people share these with me all the time, you know? So how do you chill a glass of white wine if it's not cold enough? Well, the problem is you can't put ice cubes in it because then it waters down the wine. Here's a super creative, simple solution, frozen grapes. Drop a frozen grape in there, it cools off the wine, everything's good. Love it. So, you know, again, innovation doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't require a bunch of money. We can be innovative in those little ways. And yeah, I'll tell you what, it's not only drives great outcomes. It's also intrinsically rewarding. Like there are a few things in life that are as rewarding as the expression of human creativity, which again is an asset that all of us possess.
people listening, I'm sure, will say, I actually believe this. I should be more innovative. How do we unlearn? How do we get out of that ditch, if you want? What would be your biggest tips? So what should someone do, the top three, top five tips, to find their innovation side? Yeah, so in the new book, it was really well-researched. Like I spent over a 1,000 hours in research and interviews with people all over the world. And we sort of debunked the myth that some people are creative and others are not. The biggest blocker of creativity is fear. So if we can create safe environments or even safe techniques, it allows us to bring our creativity forward much more quickly. The other thing in, in the book that we cover is the eight core obsessions of everyday innovators. So with some slight mindset shifts, each of us can start to really bring this as part of our daily life. You know, just one quick example, there's a principle called start before you're ready which is essentially not waiting for permission or directive or until or your game plan is perfect. It's just sort of getting after it, recognizing full well that you don't have the route figured out yet. So yeah, you're going to have to course correct. You're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to be agile and pivot here and there. But, but that's way more effective than waiting till you know, perfection is, is within your grasp because it rarely is. I love that. So I think that what best yeah. advice that I can give to answer your question is, Think about creativity as a skill, not a, a God-given thing. In, in other words, that we all can learn. If all of us can learn language or jazzercise, like we can learn to be creative. Second thing I would say is just it requires daily practice. So I've been playing guitar for 40 plus years. If I took the greatest guitar lesson in the history of the universe, but never practice, I wouldn't learn a thing. So it's really more about, even if it's five minutes a day, the reps is putting the reps in the daily practice. And that can be really small stuff. Like here's an example, try once a day, just don't even do anything different, but just think about what's one big little breakthrough you could discover. So maybe that's something like ordering your pizza with the pepperoni under the cheese instead of on top. Or maybe it's like starting the, the agenda of your weekly sales meeting from the back instead of the front. You can just do these little teeny things. What happens is when you discover things that aren't rote or more about what's possible, it just opens up your mind. You're sort of training your, your brain, if you will. You're rewiring your brain to be creative. And so the exercises that I cover in the book are simple, they're easy, and they're kind of fun. The key here is that it doesn't require six years of study. It doesn't require millions of dollars of investment. It's more about getting after it and practicing daily. The book is out, what, 21st of April, isn't it? It's April 20th, 4.20, which is kind of a funny thing for those. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I also hear you talk about the way you talk about and actually the way you look at things in general. I find very playful, if you want. It's like pepperoni under the cheese is actually, you know, you know, I don't know if there is any benefit to it, but it's actually worth trying. It's fun and it's a different thing. And changing life up a little bit is not a bad thing, right? Playfulness, do you think that's part of creativity? I really do. It's funny that you said that. You know, I've often thought about this. So when you're a kid, you go out to play. When you play sports, I play music. But then let's contrast it to the word work. So essentially work implies that you are doing something that is uncomfortable, that you dislike, just you're trading your soul for money. And, <laughs> and I don't know why we need to think of it in that way. I mean, what if you just substituted the word? Like, hey, honey, I'm going out to play instead of I'm going to work. What if you played through your problems instead of worked through your problems? What if you had a play force instead of a workforce? So even that simple twist in word, simply to me, when I hear play, it means that you are enjoying the process instead of dreading it. You are using your imagination to try new things. It's about tinkering and exploration as opposed to just like heads down, do what you're told. To me, work doesn't need to be about compliance. It can be about you know lifting others around you and, and, and creating amazing things in our lives. And yeah, I think playfulness is a good thing, not a bad one. And again, to be clear, some people might listen to this and they think it's binary. That means that, oh, no one's going to get any work. They're going to just play foosball all day. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm saying you can have an actual real world meeting tackling a real world challenge with the same intensity that you really care about your business today. But if you do it in a playful way, you actually might uncover better outcomes as opposed to the more rigorous approach that you, you're using currently. 
Is this why you keep doing what you're doing? I mean, you don't need to do this stuff, but you're just completely about it, right? You're enjoying it, obviously. Is that why? Is that what gets you out of bed every morning? I do really enjoy it. You know, I feel like I'm in a wonderful business. I'm in the aha business. And if I can help people like have an aha, like how cool is that? You know, and I get calls and emails from people all the time, but here's, again, I know it sounds like a little like a postcard, but I really believe this. I mean, think about this. If there were people running around with another resource that was untapped, let's say they all had, you know, a million dollars of Bitcoin in their pocket, but they didn't know how to access it. And think about if you could just help them access this resource that they already have, like think how different people's lives would be and how better the world would be. That's amazing. And what we have inside of us is way better than a million dollars of Bitcoin. We have the capacity to change the world. Every invention originated from creativity, every change for the good, every drug therapy. And so I really believe that every person has this dormant, untapped capacity. And this mission that I'm on, like if I can help people bring a little bit of that to the surface, the world is just a better place. And that's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm so passionate about this topic. Amazing. Okay. Difficult question. Do you mind? Fire away. Anything. These are probably one of the more challenging times humanity has faced. And I think we need a lot of creativity. I mean, if you and I brainstorm the old way about what can be done, how can creativity help us nowadays, either at the individual level or at the global level? You know, people are locked down in many places around the world. There are very unexpected events, you know, what happened in Texas or, you know, the world seems to be very uncertain, concerning sometimes. What are some of the innovative, creative ideas we can deploy now to make our lives better? Well, it's a really good point. And I think that in times of crisis, this principle is needed more than ever. I mean, you think about it, they always say, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. But what I feel with COVID specifically, and many, many other, you know, sort of macro changes from environmental changes and geopolitical turmoil, et cetera, I feel like the world has hit a giant reset button. And that unlocks opportunity. And there's a threat if we don't do anything about it. But the opportunity is that patterns have been broken. And there's an old saying that when patterns are broken, new worlds emerge. So patterns are broken, which means consumer patterns are broken. And the way you interact with friends, the way you go out to dinner or don't, you know, the way you order in, I should say, patterns have been broken. And those are business relationships and approaches and systems and processes. And there's the opportunity for us to seize, which is now is the time to really reinvent, to examine what's possible instead of relying on old methodologies. It's sort of like, if the milk in re- your refrigerator is expired, it's time to get some new milk. Well, to a degree, many of our approaches have been expired, not to our choice, but as we face this global crisis, now is the chance for us to you know, reimagine what that new carton of milk is like, you know, to, to really rethink how we're doing things. And I think that rethinking can benefit us if we choose to pursue it. On the other hand, if all we do is cling to the past and we're doggedly persistent instead of open-minded, I think that could create a real problem for those that choose not to sort of develop the skill set. In other words, in the past, maybe it was optional, but I believe today it's mission critical. Do you believe we will ever go back to the past, to that norm? I mean, it's almost naive to think that way, right? People definitely need to start going out and looking at it innovatively because it's never going to be the same again. I think you're right there. I would say that in the history of humanity, however many thousands of years we've been alive as a species, we've never gone back. Like that old, even the saying like, well, we go back to the way it was. When has that ever happened? Like from 1960 to 1940, we never went back to 1940. The world was different and it keeps evolving. And in fact, it's evolving at an ever changing rate, the greatest times of change in, in human history. So I don't think that we have the luxury of going back. We don't live in a vacuum. We're living in a world that's changing more rapidly than ever. So I don't know that we can ever go back, quote unquote. I think that COVID will create change, but I think even more modest things after COVID will continue to create change. I think it's better for us to think about success, not as a permanent state, but as a 
condition that's rapidly changing due to many external factors, which means that, again, I think we should always be evaluating and reinventing and pushing the boundaries rather than just doing what we've in the past. Because the same way that milk has that expiration date we talked about, so do most things. So does the process, so does the system. And the way that that gets expired is because a new competitor or a new entrant comes in and does a better job with it. So I think it's incumbent on us to sort of be that source of disruption, to put ourselves out of business, if you will, with a new and better version. I love that, Josh. I really, again, just like I started our conversation, I every time I listen to you or I read your work, I go like, that's easy. Like you make it look easy. And I think you put so much energy into telling us what you know. I think you're an amazing success story. So that stuff must work. I'm encouraging everyone listening to us to actually investigate this a bit more. As I said at the beginning, it's not the topic that we normally talk about at Slow Mo because in Slow Mo, we're trying to help you find a more peaceful place in life if you want. But I will tell you openly, I think being more creative, being more up to your full potential, I think gives you a much better place in life. And I think Josh's work is a, is a very uh, key part of that. I'm looking forward so much to that next book. And I am really, really grateful that you gave us the time uh, today, Josh. As always, it's really, really uplifting to listen to your optimism, to your creative ideas, to your make it look easy approach to everything. I'm very grateful that you joined me. It's so kind of you to say, and I agree with you. You know, you think about inner peace and, and one of the worst senses of inner turmoil that we can have is the sense of regret or falling short on our true potential. And, and I think that, you know, we owe it to ourselves and to our loved ones and to our businesses to, you know, to inject a little creativity. It's, it's rewarding intrinsically. It can make a real difference in people's lives. And I do think that that actually, not, it's not the silver bullet, but it definitely can contribute to the inner peace that you described. So I'm grateful to have the opportunity to share. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you. So there you go. I told you Josh is the fastest speaker we've ever had in slow-mo. I hope you found it refreshing though. I love the idea that we all have it in us to be creative and innovative. And I hope that you tap into that and that you find life to be playful in a way that makes you reach that potential of creating amazing, amazing things for all of us. Big little breakthroughs as uh, Josh calls them. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity that you give me to speak to so many interesting people. Find me on social media and please tell me what you think. If you're interested in more guests that are a little bit outside our normal domain, give me guest recommendations. I'm uh, mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo.gaudet.personal or mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. I am mo gaudet on LinkedIn and I'm gaudet on Twitter. Would love to hear from you and always, always grateful for the opportunity. I love you all for listening. Always remember that regardless of how busy you are today, there's always an opportunity and a chance for you to slow down. I'll see you next time.